You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Welcome to the Real Vision Presents podcast. This week, we bring you sustainable excellence in investing and life. It features Dr. Gio Valiante. He's the founder of Fearless Golf and former head performance coach at Point72 Asset Management. In this podcast, Dr. Valiante provides a handful of tips and anecdotes that'll help you sustain excellence over time in investing and life. So we hope you enjoy it. For Real Vision, I'm Drew Bissett. My name is Dr. Gio Valianti. Uh, I'm the head performance coach at Point72, uh, former professor at Rollins College and uh, head performance coach for many of the world's best golfers. I got my PhD at Emory University uh, and became a professor at a place called Rollins College uh, where I started doing some research on the psychology of, of golfers, specifically professional golfers. Um, wrote a book called Fearless Golf and a follow-up book called Golf Flow and have worked with probably over 150 PGA Tour golfers uh, in my life and, you know, helped generate uh, upwards of 50 professional wins uh, with those golfers. Somewhere right around 2014 or 2015, um, I was giving a talk uh, down, in, uh, down in Miami and in the audience happened to be a portfolio manager for Point72 who then subsequently flew up to Point72, apparently, and as the story goes, told Steve, uh, hey, I, I heard a talk about psychology that's very relevant to what we do for a living. Uh, and the, they reached out to me. I flew up and gave a talk at Steve's house about the psychology of performance writ large, uh, particularly in what we call achievement domains. And achievement domains are defined as anything with a measurable score, right? So sales you know, has, has a scoreboard for salespeople. Education, you have your test scores or your grades. Uh, sports has a scoreboard and so does uh, do hedge funds in terms of P&L. And it's interesting, the psychology of these achievement domains, there's a lot of parallels between these, these types of achievement domains. So as I was talking about how I approach uh, performance with athletes and golf and, and the few um, executives and, and um, investors that I was working with, Point72 really liked it. Um, very quickly offered me a consulting opportunity to work with some of their investors, which um, rolled into a job offer, and here I am five years later. And so people often ask me, what are the parallels between golf and, and investing in the hedge fund world? And one of the things you come to realize is, is there's no such thing as a perfect 
golfer, right? Um, no one's born to play golf, and the brain hasn't evolved to be a professional golfer, and there's no such thing as really a perfect investor. And so what you come to realize is everyone is a cluster of compensations. And so if you look at the history of golf, for example, Jack Nicklaus, arguably the best ever, wasn't a good chipper, had a, had a bad short game. Tiger Woods is not a particularly good driver of the golf ball. And so what the best in the world do is they're able to identify their weaknesses and compensate accordingly so the, the flaws don't become what we call fatal flaws. And the same is true of investors. You know, if it, you have some people who are more natural investors. I have a, a portfolio manager that I work with who started trading stocks when he was 12 years old. Uh, it's very natural to him. It's like Rory McIlroy in golf. I call him, you know, the Rory McIlroy investing. He's just such a natural talent. But not everyone can have that natural talent. But a lot of people make money. And so the question is, how do they do it if they're not as gifted with the horsepower and the IQ points as this particular individual? Some people compensate by work ethic. They just work harder. Some people compensate through having a better process and being religiously committed to that process. Some people compensate by hiring talent really well. Uh, some people come to just experience. They've been around the game so long. They've seen so much. They have better judgment. So what you come to realize is everybody has flaws. And the, the really great ones are able to understand their flaws, compensate effectively for them so that those flaws do not become fatal flaws. So when you, when you talk about the expensive flaws uh, for traders, uh, you have to think of it in terms of you know what, what nowadays they call cognitive biases, but Freud called defense mechanisms, which is arguably a better model for understanding uh, why investors make the mistakes that they make. From a psychological perspective, I think it was Abraham Maslow who said this. He said, man is an ever-wanting creature. And what he meant by that is he meant human beings. Right? We always want more. Uh, think of it in terms of food, right? You have a wonderful meal, you have a dessert, you're like, so man, I'm stuffed, I, I couldn't eat another bite. And fast forward a half hour, you're like, boy, I'm hungry again, right? So this desire, this want is just built into the human condition. And in fact, if you look at some of the major philosophical schools of thought and religions, that's what they're trying to solve for in the human condition, right? So what does you know, Catholicism do with want? Well, it punishes it with guilt. It's saying, listen, want is, is, is dangerous. Story of the Garden of Eden, right? If you want too much, you know, internal damnation. So, you know, Catholicism tries to deal with this ever-present human want, you know, with, with guilt and suppression. Buddhism and Hinduism takes this want that hum all humans have and says, you know, want is a cause of suffering, so let's remove it. You know, the key to enlightenment is to want nothing. Sell all your earthly possessions, go to the top of a mountain, uh, and detach from this want. Hedonism says, well, listen, if, if you want it, if you have an itch, scratch it. Like hedonism is satiate the want. So what you see is three different schools of thought trying to solve for this, this feature of humanity, which is we always want more. You know, so Catholicism punishes it with guilt. Buddhism says remove want. Hind uh, hedonism says satiate it, right, that desire. Well, it acknowledges that that we always want more. And if you, if you assign that to an investment professional and you want to make money, and maybe you want to make money because you, know, you have a $5 million mortgage because you had a good year last year and you need to make money, you want to make money, you impose your want on the market. The market doesn't care about what your wants are, uh, that you need to make money. So, so it becomes a bias. This, this, this desire to make money is often a trap that, that investors impose their, their needs or their wants on the market, and the market being such an efficient machine, you know, punishes things like that. You know, I often think of the market, the metaphor I use is that of a soccer ball. So if you take a soccer ball, 
and you put a pinhole in it and you, and you hold it under the water, you're going to see where that hole is, like where, the, where the, the, the inefficiency, where the flaws, bubbles will come out. In a parallel fashion, the market exposes us as human beings. So if you're overconfident, the market will punish that. If you're underconfident, the market will punish that. If you're prone to making the same mistake time and again and again, the market's going to punish that uh, if you can't learn from your mistakes. Um, if you're risk averse, the market will punish that. If uh, you're impatient, uh, if, if you have a problem with attachments, if, you, if you're attached to a position emotionally, it's a bad decision, but you won't let it go, the market will punish that. So whatever your fly is as a human being, the market has an uncanny way of identifying it and exposing it. So here's a story um, of a golfer I had worked with. He had been on the PGA Tour for about, you know, six or seven years, and he had never won. So he was 0 for, you know, 200 in terms of winning. Though he was really good and he had the lead a lot, he just didn't know how to win. He didn't know how to close the deal. And so he reached out to me and, and um, asked if, uh, if I'd help him. And running parallel with this record of never winning was the fact that he was, statistically speaking, the most accurate ball striker on the PGA Tour. So he was actually great at golf, um, great at hitting the ball close to where he wanted it to go, but he couldn't win and didn't know why. What we uncovered is that when he would get in contention or close to the lead, he would start to press. In other words, he would start to take more risk, thinking, in order to win, I have to play perfect golf, I have to play better. So he would invite more risk and then get punished and then fall out of the lead. So what I'd said to him was, I said, listen, statistically speaking, you're the best ball striker on tour. So when you're near the lead, do the exact opposite of what your instincts are telling you to do. In other words, take less risk. Wear people out with the accuracy of your ball striking and let them keep up with you rather than you trying to keep up with them. In other words, don't press, make them press. And so he went into uh, the Sunday round of golf, uh, two or three shots off the lead. And again, rather than, than taking risk and a risky line and, and, and trying to hit it close to the pin, where if you miss it, you're in a bunker, a sand trap or whatever, he would hit it to the middle of the fairway, the middle part of the green, you know, take bogey and take, take risk out of play. And all of a sudden the leaders who weren't great uh, winners either started taking more risk and they fell back. And I think he won by five or six shots. So the lesson being, the lack of, of performance had nothing to do with the skills or the ability. It was the lack of confidence which led to higher risk-taking, um, uh, which led to disproportionate punishment in him playing back. So this is a story of, of someone being underconfident uh, in the skills they have, so thinking they have to compensate through taking more risk. And then when we took risk off the table, let the skills flourish, you know, he performed better. So you know, confidence is a really important thing in, in golf and in investing. Uh, you need confidence for all sorts of reasons. If you understand the psychology of confidence and how the dominoes fall, really important thing. But there's two types of confidence, right? There's confidence that emerges from arrogance, which is a very vacuous sort of false type of confidence that once punctured, it's difficult to come back from. There's also the confidence that comes from humility, right? So confidence from arrogance or confidence from humility. If you can develop true, authentic confidence in your skills and your ability, that leads to patience, right? Where you're humble in the face of the market, but confident, confident in your process. You're able to withstand those mistakes better and not compound mistakes with more bad decision making. And therein lies the beauty of the modern day sort of analytics and, and the profiles you can create, you know, quantification and so forth. In other words, on the PGA Tour and in the hedge fund world, we keep pretty good 
data around individuals. And so, for example, a golfer will say to me, you know, boy, I'm really confident in my short game. And I could say, well, the, the data shows that you're not really that good. Like, this is a weak part of your game. You know, in golf, we say feel isn't real. You can feel a particular way, but it's got to be supported by what the numbers say. You know, I feel like I'm a great driver of the golf ball. Well, you're ranked 150th on the PGA Tour, so that's really not a strength. So let's get to work on it. So, again, it goes, it goes back to the confidence that comes from humility, being humble enough to say, okay, well, if the numbers are telling that story and if my team is telling me uh, that story, I'm going to have to trust the numbers and or trust my teammates and take a look and try to correct these weaknesses. It happens with, with traders, you know, over trading or not getting out of positions fast enough, even though they feel, or feel isn't real, they feel a particular way. When the data tells a different story, you have to take a long, hard look at what you're doing, but more importantly, why you're doing what you're doing. Um, you know, superficial changes are unsustainable, but if you get the root cause of why people are behaving in a way that they're behaving, that's how you affect real and long-lasting change. Right, you know, there's a, there's a term in psychology we call situated cognition, the idea being that um, ideas happen in space, right? I have different ideas in a coffee shop than I do on an airplane, than I do, you know, around my children, than I do in a library or, or in the office, right? So ideas don't just happen between the years, they happen arguably in, in, in space. We know that students will act, actually test differently in different buildings. So if you have a building with windows that you can see natural light and outdoor space, it triggers different things in the brain than if you're in a building that's concrete with halogen lights and no windows, right? So, so ideas happen in space. What happens is, is traders and investors get into ruts regularly. And if you're, if you're good at what you do, you've often got there through your puritanical work ethic. The idea being, when I failed in the past, the answer's always been just work harder. Sleep less and work harder. But when you're in a rut, that doesn't work because all of a sudden, you know, it's almost like you know, being stuck in sand with a car and just you're spinning your wheels. So I had a portfolio manager who I was working with. He was youngish uh, and he was in a draw um, and he looked awful and he hadn't been sleeping and he was putting out bad ideas and just really was lost. And he was historically really, really good at what he did. I said, listen, I think you need to, um, it's not about changing your mind, it's about changing the space that your mind is in. I said, take a trip. I want you to go work from one of our remote offices. He said, I can't afford to do that right now. I've got to work really, really hard. I said, no, 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 you need to do the opposite. You need to get somewhere different and actually sleep because in a toxic, a toxic mindset, is not gonna produce exceptional ideas. A toxic mind, a toxic state of, 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 of a person is gonna generate you know, bad ideas. You're gonna think bad ideas are good because you can't see things well. You're not seeing things accurately or clearly. And so finally he took my advice and he left early on a Friday and he ended up going down to Florida. And this was in February and he got some sunshine and he got some rest and he got some exercise and he didn't look at his, at his positions. And he came back, you know, and he started looking at him again second half of the day Sunday and you know, on Monday, he was looking at his book. He's like, this is a terrible portfolio construction. He's like, why do I have, and he started kicking names out of the book. He started adding new names and freshening up the ideas. And the book started performing well. And it's funny, because when I said to him, I, I think you need to work less uh, and, and, and better, fewer ideas, but better quality. He looked at me like I was crazy. And after his book started performing, he's like, oh, I get it now. So now he does this quarterly as a matter of process. Every, you know, once a quarter, four times a year, he takes time off to do a reset and make sure his brain and his health and everything's functioning at a really high level. A parallel story is with a golfer I was working with. In fact, it was a guy named Justin Leonard, who's a major champion, uh, now does TV broadcasting in golf. 
uh, Justin um, had been going through a slump and he had called me. We hadn't been working, but I had been helping friends of his. Uh, and I said, listen, I said, I think you need to take a couple weeks off. And he said, because I, I said to him, I said, are you scheduled to play in next week's tournament? He said, yeah. I said, I think you should cancel and then take two weeks off. And golfers who are in a slump usually think the opposite. They think, I need to play more to make more money. But my argument is, well, you can play 40 times a year, 40 events, with 60% of your skills, or 30% of your, 30 events at 90% of your skills. And I would argue that if you're an elite golfer, you want to play less with more of your resources, emotionally, psychologically, physically, technically. So he hadn't won, I think, in two years. It had been a while. I forget how long since he'd won. He took two weeks off, came back, and we went out. And we put a game plan together, and I, and I think we won within the next two or three weeks. And this is after a, a prolonged slump. But again, the way we did it was paradoxical. It wasn't work harder. Uh, and wear yourself out more and hope to play well. It was work less, rest, sharpen yourself up so when it's time to engage in, in these high performance settings, you're prepared and you're ready. So those are parallel examples in the investing world and the golf world where, where you have to go against your puritanical work ethic to do a mental reset, recalibrate, and then engage the market or engage the game. You know, it's funny because you've got to look at this from a historical perspective. You know, the mindset in the 80s and 90s was, you know, you know, sleep when you die, right? It was just, just, just outwork everybody. But as, you know, scientific psychology and really other domains of science have, have come to reveal, uh, there's a tipping point. If you're not sleeping enough, you're making bad decisions. You know, if you're fueling yourself on coffee and alcohol and bad food, you know, your glycemic index is going to be off and you're going to make bad decisions. And investing is all about making good decisions. So if you're committed to not sleeping and eating bad and just, just working and you, you see investing as an act of, you know, of self-abuse, arguably, I'll sleep when I die and I'm just going to punish my, like, our, the markets will identify and punish that. So rest, you know, we always say motion creates emotion, right? So there, there's, there's a few things that for people I work with that are, that are mandated. You have to you have to work out. You have to do some level of fitness in you. You have to even if it's just taking a walk once a day. You got to move. You you got to have motion in your life, right? You have to monitor your diet. We got to be careful about what you're eating. I'm not saying you have to train the way my professional athletes train and, and put and, and be hypersensitive to the food you put in your body. But you have to understand the relationship between food, what happens in the gut, the vagal nerve, which has a direct line of communication to the brain, to the heart and to the brain. And so if you're eating badly and not sleeping, and you think you're making good decisions, but they're not working and you're externalizing and blaming it on other things, you gotta look internally. You know, what are you doing that's generating the bad ideas? And when you do that more often than not, you know, we ask the question, what part of the problem am I? Now you come to realize that, that uh, the problem is with the individual, it's not an externality. So the mandates for me are, uh, you know, we got to monitor your sleep. And there are times where you, you can't, you have to stay awake. Like right? if you're trading internationally or it's you know, earning season, but eventually you have to do some sort of recovery. So sleep matters, food matters, you know, a balanced personal life really matters. You know, if you have a toxic personal life, um, uh, we don't check our, our, our problems at the door when we walk into the building for work. They come with us. It, the, Chris Rock has a funny joke. He said, you know, in the olden days, they used to have smoking sections of an airplane. He goes, can you imagine a smoking section of an airplane? 
He said, that's like having a peeing section of a swimming pool. Like there's no, there's, these things are not quarantined off. And that's true in our lives. Like if we have a toxic personal life, it's gonna be hard to have a functional professional life. If we're, if we're uh, not taking care of certain aspects of our lives, it's gonna bleed into the decisions we make personally. Um, these things, are, there are no hard lines between the two. And so having a functional life and a high, high performance life generally leads to high performance outcomes in our professional jobs. In psychology, this emerges from Albert, Bandura, Albert Bandura's social cognitive theory. It's what Bandura calls uh, normative failure. And the idea being, when failure is the norm, resilience becomes second nature. And so there's two paths and two ways to think about failure in investing. Number one, you want to avoid it as much as you can. But the data shows that in the hedge fund world, even the best investors are only right approximately 56, 57% of the time. And so failure is baked into the process, and this is true of golf as well. So what you need to do is develop a psychology or a psychological playbook that teaches you how to deal with failure. You know, so on the one hand, you wanna to try to avoid it, but it's unavoidable. So assuming that failure is required on the path to excellence, you need to develop a type of psychology that when you fail, it doesn't puncture your confidence. Failure is a form of pain to many people, and pain drives us, drives, drives us as human beings in one of two paths. It's that hurt, I don't wanna feel that way anymore, so I'm gonna be risk averse. In other words, I, I, you know, it, it compromises our appetite for risk. And then the other path is I never wanna feel that way again, so it drives us to work harder, to be better at our craft. You know, the old Chinese proverb, you know, use failure as fuel for the journey. And so what we do with failure and how we respond to our failures is critically important to have a long-term, sustainable, successful career as a professional investor. We talk about the psychology of attachments, right? People tend to be attached to results, right? We, we attach to P&L, we attach to our score in golf. The particular type of psychology, when your well-being, right, when you're earning, when your income is somewhat attached to things over which you have no control, that invokes a particular type of psychology because confidence, we call self-efficacy, is rooted in our ability to control things that lead to the outcomes that matter to us, right? In golf, you can hit a perfect shot and a gust of wind, a swirling wind can knock it into the lake. Uh, you can hit a perfect shot, it hits a sprinkler head and bounces out of bounds. You can hit a perfect putt, it sits on the lip or a breeze. So there's so many things that happen in golf that even when you do everything correct on the controllable side, the uncontrollable things knock the result off course and that leads to a certain psychological mindset. Same in trading. Earning season comes up. You've done all the deep fundamental work. You've gotten everything right. And for things out of your control, whether it's a factor or sentiment or the CEO comes out and misspeaks and your position where you've done all the work and you're right, which was a long and should have gone up, goes down. And that's frustrating. And the way I bucket this is, you know, we, we talk about the relationship between process and outcomes. And we know that on the eternal timeline, outcomes will be a reflection of process. So a good process invariably leads to good outcomes. Maybe not immediately. Like your process may get punished in the short term because of externalities and things over which we have control. And that's why we treat process, you know, I, I use as an example, the back of a shampoo bottle, right? Lather, wash, rinse, repeat. If you're doing great fundamental work uh, and you're making a lot of money, how do you handle making a lot of money early? Well, you show up and you run your process, lather, wash, rinse, repeat. If you know, uh, uh, you've lost money early, but you're doing great fundamental work, 
and your team and your coach all sign off like, this is great work. You're getting it right, but the market's punishing it. How do you handle that? Lather, wash, rinse, repeat, right? You run your process so that you, you're, what you don't want, if you, if you assume that the P&L of an investment professional will ebb and flow throughout a year, right? There'll be up and down. You want your process to be the straight line, you know, to be consistent. But what you do not want is you don't want your emotional profile to look like your P&L, right? You don't want to, to rise and fall emotionally with your P&L. You don't want to rise and fall motivationally with your P&L. You have to be committed to an exceptional process that, that gets better over time and, and, and trust what we call the lag effect, that the work we, in, we, we put in January will show up in March. The work we put in March, in, that we put in in March, will show up in August and September, right? So you lay the patterns down early and, and have the patience to trust the, the lag effect. One of the really important things, uh, and this is true in all achievement domains, and remember I define an achievement domain by anything with a measurable score. So it's sales, it's sports, it's business, it's trading, investing, it's education is this dynamic between entitlement and gratitude. And I learned this from my friend Doc Rivers, who's the coach of the, of the LA Clippers. You know, Doc always tells the story about the relationship. He says, he says, for successful people who have ostensibly generated a lot of wealth, they tend to start become, uh, feeling very entitled. And so their gratitude does this and their entitlement does that. And you get more success, entitlement, gratitude. And eventually that gets punished. And you can look at the hey, look at what happens with Tiger Woods. Look what's happened with a lot of these billionaires who are blowing themselves up because you get so entitled in life. What gets rewarded sustainably over the course of a career in golf or a career in investing or a career in life? So we call an attitude of gratitude. If you actively practice gratitude, whether it's in the face of, of draws or in the face of exceptional returns, you have to have a process in place where you wake up grateful for the things you have. Now, that doesn't mean you don't want more. And I'm not vilifying wealth. You have to find the balance between being thankful for what you have, but always pressing for excellence to generate you know, better returns and better performance. And I'll never forget a story. I'd worked with a young golfer. I'd worked with him when he was in college. And he graduated from college and you know, went on the mini tours. And I worked with him on the mini tours. And he made it to the PGA Tour. Uh, and he's won on the PGA Tour, and he started becoming young and rich and famous and really handsome, and he was a superstar. And I'll never forget, uh, you know, the third, fourth, fifth year on tour when he said to me, he was, in, he was in a grumpy mood before a tournament. I said, why are you so grouchy? He said, well, I think he had a deal with NetJets or some private, uh, private group. He said, you know, this other golfer gets to fly on a Gulfstream, and I'm stuck on a Citation or a Lear. And I said, excuse me? I said, time out. I said, five years ago, you were driving a Honda Accord with 250,000 miles all around the country, hoping to be able to play for the privilege of playing on the PGA Tour. Now you're in a bad mood because someone else is flying on a nicer private jet than you from one tournament to another. I think someone needs a, a reset here. And he, he, he was like, oh my God. He's like, what, what's happening? I said, what, yeah, what is happening? So we, we, we had to start actively practicing an attitude of gratitude and humbling ourselves and being grateful for the opportunity to, to play on the PGA Tour, having gratitude for the opportunity to have the seat of a portfolio manager at a great firm. Like, these are real privileges. One of the things I, I, I always say is when I wake up in the morning, you know, if I turn on my shower and there's hot water, I'm having a good day. That, that's my benchmark. You know, my baseline is if you can have food, 
for breakfast and hot water come out of the shower. You're having a good day. Everything else you got to work for and earn every day. But entitlement is so corrosive to sustainable long-term greatness uh, that you have to keep it in check uh, at every turn. So as Doc Rivers has taught me, if this is where your entitlement is and this is where your level of gratitude is, and you see it all the time at country clubs, you see it all the time at resorts where all, well, all the wealthy people congregate and you see a lot of entitlement and, and not a lot of gratitude. And if you want to work with me and if you really care about being better than whatever you're at, you have to reverse the two and take your entitlement and we diminish it, take your gratitude and we amplify it. And if we practice that you know, regularly uh, and you're good at what you do, more than likely you're going to have better results. And this is true at an individual level. It's true at a team level. Uh, my friend Sean McDermott, the head coach of the Buffalo Bills, always uses the phrase humble and hungry, humble and hungry, even though they made the playoffs for the first time in like 15 years. Um, you know, they'd done something in Buffalo they hadn't done in a very long time, humble and hungry. So whether you're an investment professional, or a golfer, or an athlete, an individual level, a team level, or an institutional level, the, the values of humility in relationship to entitlement and the dynamic between the two are extremely important. Yeah, when I wrote Fearless Golf, it's interesting. I didn't start with the title and then write the book. The title emerged. I was doing a qualitative study, and in the interviews I was doing with, uh, with professional and high-level amateur golfers, the recurring theme was fear. And I'm like, it's so interesting because golf isn't boxing. It's not the NFL. What is there to be afraid of? No one's going to hit you, and you're going to get tackled by Tiger Woods on the golf course. And so the fact that fear was a recurring theme was so interesting to me um, and universally distributed across the game. So that's why I ended up writing Fearless Golf. Well, lo and behold, in the world of trading, it's, it's a 100% you know, corollary parallel, that fear exists, it is corrosive, and it leads to a bias. And so one of the things I try to teach people to do, and this is, this is more of a personal thing than a professional thing, in, in the own work that I've done on myself, there are two things that I've tried to root out of my heart. You know, you think of picking dandelions, you gotta get them at a root level. The, the two things that are, I think are really corrosive to high functioning uh, individuals are hate and fear, right? Because those are drivers of a lot of human behavior that, that may work initially, but eventually fail spectacularly. So I always say you wanna root fear and hate out of your heart for various reasons. Um, and so I try to live my life accordingly. Fear has a place in life, right? But but if you think about the evolution of the brain and how in the limbic system, the brain didn't evolve through natural selection to be a professional investor. So the fear trigger in, in what's called the amygdala doesn't listen to reason. You know, uh, Henry David Thoreau has that famous saying that the heart has reasons the head will never understand. What he actually meant is the amygdala does things, right? This, this fear trigger does things um, for reasons that are not rational or cognitive. So do I think it's important to be fearless? Absolutely. And the reason it's important to be fearless is because fear compromises objectivity, right? So uh, fearless golf, I think it's translated now into six or seven languages. And the reason that it's translated universally is because it's a universal human theme. Everyone experiences it uh, for various reasons. And it's something that you have to learn how to strategize around or deal with effectively. Absolutely true in, in trading. Do I think you need to be fearless all the time? No, in a threatening market, your fear, fear trigger better be healthy and know, hey, there's danger here. Deploy your capital accordingly, right? You know, danger, Will Rogers, be aware. So when I talk about the concept of fearless, people misunderstand. They think I mean reckless. You don't want to be reckless in trading. You don't want to be reckless in golf. 
but, but being fearless as a rule of thumb is generally a good thing. Human beings think of it, you know, go through elementary school, middle school, high school, it feels good to be right. You know, we get praised for being right and sanctioned and punished for being wrong. So we have a bias toward wanting to be right, which is not objective. And so the way the brain works, we tend to give ourselves, you know, disproportionate amount of credit when we're right. And when we're wrong, we tend to disproportionately blame outside and external factors, right? So we externalize failure, we internalize success, which is not accurate, which, you know, the a priori um, fact of that is, and this is a Freudian observation, uh, although you know these cognitive biases have sort of built a business uh, around the simple fact that, as Freud said, we are not accurate observers of our own behavior. We're not designed to be. The brain is not designed so that we accurately observe our behavior. In fact, if you immerse yourself in the world of professional poker players, what you'll find, and they all know each other, and they, they observe each other, and they know each they know the other person's flaws, but they're not so good at knowing their flaws, right? So essentially, I see you accurately, but I don't see myself accurately. You see me accurately, but you don't see yourself accurately. So what a lot of these professional poker players have begun to do is team up and say, hey, listen, let's assume that I don't see my flaws, but I see yours. You don't see your flaws, but I do. Let's team up. You point out my weaknesses to me. I'll point out your weaknesses to you and we'll, and we'll work together. And as a function of that, what you see is a lot of the best poker players in the world to become almost like a team type thing. This has happened in a lot of individual sports like golf, um, like tennis, like they're historically known as individual sports. But the team model works so well, arguably because you have trusted people around you who you're giving permission to critique you and critique your game and, and compensate for that Freudian observation that we are not accurate observers of our own behavior. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.